0: Have you understood these things? After completing a series of seven parables designed to describe and to illustrate the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus turned to the disciples and asked them this pointed question. Have you understood these things? Do you Understand these mysteries of the kingdom given to those who have eyes to see and ears to hear? Do you comprehend the truths given to those who desire entry into the kingdom of heaven by fully submitting to the King of the kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you understood these secrets of the kingdom, secrets that are concealed from those whose hearts have grown dull? whose hearts have hardened and grown insensitive to them. Have you understood these secrets that are concealed from those who rebel against and reject the gracious offer of citizenship in the kingdom of heaven by grace through faith in the King, Jesus Christ? To those who, concealed from those who close their eyes to keep from seeing, who stop up their ears to keep from hearing, who refuse to understand with their hearts, who scorn and repudiate the necessity of turning to the Lord, who can and would save anyone and everyone should they do so. These are the two options, right? the two groups that are described by Jesus over and over and over again in his earthly ministry so far in the Gospel of Matthew. There are those who strive, who see and value the kingdom of God that is being offered in Christ and strive to understand the truths that are revealed to them because they see the value of the king, they see the value of the kingdom, and they want nothing more than to lay hold of that kingdom. To so such as these, Jesus said in Matthew thirteen twelve, even more will be given to you. Meaning those who turn to the king in faith will receive a number of wonders and blessings and benefits of participating in the kingdom of heaven. And they will hear and they will learn and they will grow in the knowledge of the kingdom as the Holy Spirit instructs them and guides them and leads them in the truth of God's word. But then there are also those who reject the offer of citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. They reject the call to repent from their sin and turn to Jesus Christ in faith. And for all such rebels who set themselves up as enemies to the kingdom because they reject the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus said in Matthew thirteen twelve, even what they have will be taken away from them. And this taking away that Jesus refers to is shown by his switch from clear, direct, and expressly intelligible teaching to the crowds and the Pharisees and the religious leaders to this more figurative style of parables. See, in Matthew 13, there's a, a radical shift in the way Jesus teaches the people. There is a move from this clear, open, and transparent style to a more figurative form called parables. And so you've got all these crowds dotting the shores of the beach and they might hear the parables and they might even understand the common everyday pictures of life that are described by the parables. Pictures of sowing seed, pictures of finding treasure buried in the ground, pictures of wheat and weeds growing up in the field. But the deeper spiritual lessons that Jesus points at in those parables are hidden from those who do not have eyes to see and do not have ears to hear and are revealed to those who want to lay hold of the king. And after he speaks these seven parables about the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13, he doesn't direct his question to the crowds, but instead looks at the disciples and asks them, have you understood all these things? Have you comprehended them? Can you say, yes, I've grasped what you have just spoken and taught? And look at their answer. The answer is clearly and simply, yes. And while they might grasp the truths that Jesus is teaching now, up to them at this moment, it was only after the arrival of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost that they were able to preach and proclaim these truths with a deep and powerful clarity. At this moment, they understood the parables, they understood the truths that the parables taught, but these were still men without the aid and the power and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And so as we progress through Matthew's gospel and we see them trying to work all of these things out, we witness a number of moments in their lives where they reveal a profound ignorance and a profound lack of insight into the truths that Christ is preaching. But even so, Christ knows the plans that he has for these 12 men, or for these 11 men or 12 men. And so he speaks another parable and illustrates their responsibility. So there are eight parables in Matthew chapter 13. Seven of them refer to the kingdom and one of them illustrates the responsibility of those who understand the truths of the kingdom that Jesus has proclaimed in this chapter. Look at verse 52. Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So I want you to note a few things here about this parable. A scribe in Israel was one who was trained in the law of God, one who devoted themselves to the teaching of that law to all the people. But the problem with Israel's scribes, however, is that over time, they, along with the rabbis and the religious teachers and the Jewish leaders, They obscured the truth of God's word as they buried it under a number of man-made rules and man-made traditions. But these disciples, these disciples standing in front of Jesus, you as disciples today, you will constitute true scribes. Those instructed in the word of God, those trained for the kingdom of heaven, you, along with them, will be what Jesus likens to a master of a house. You see that? A master of a house. Now, what do we know about masters of a house during this time? Well, they were people of great importance. Their oversight of the house consisted in their working for the benefit of everyone who belonged to that household. The master of a house was responsible for the welfare of all the people in the house. And so they were careful to ensure that food was stored up And careful to ensure that that food was distributed to the members of the household as they had need. They ensured that all of the members of the house enjoyed the advantages and the blessings of the treasures in that house. As Jesus said, right? Every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure. You see that? Who brings out of his treasure. The term brings out here means to widely and to generously scatter, meaning nobody in the house goes hungry. You could picture it. I read a news article the other day. Now, I'm not condoning robbery in any way. Please do not go out and rob. It's a wicked thing. But I read a news article the other day about a man who went into a local bank and he robbed that bank. And after he he took all the money he'd stolen that he had stuffed into his sack, went out into the middle of the street and started tossing all that money up in the air and it started w- wafting everywhere as the wind carried it all over the streets. And after he had emptied out the bag and all the money went everywhere, he went into the nearest coffee shop or the nearest diner, sat down, ordered a coffee, and waited for the authorities to come and arrest him. Again, not condoning robbery, but the picture of the man throwing all the money in the air is a good picture of that word, brings out, in verse 52. Now, what is it that the master of the house brings out of his treasure? Look at it. He says he brings out what is new and what is old. The entirety of his treasure is brought out as necessary to support and benefit and uphold the members of the house. So what is Jesus getting at here with this, with this, with this parable? His point to the disciples is this. Now that you understand the realities of this kingdom, you as a citizen, you as a disciple, as an ambassador of the kingdom, are tasked with bringing these truths out from the great storehouse of treasure and scattering those truths far and wide to anyone and to everyone as they have need. In other words, as Jesus would rephrase it later on at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, go and make all disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And as you do, the entire treasure, what is new and what is old, is at your disposal. Draw from the covenants." Draw from the law. Draw from the prophets. Draw from the histories. Draw from the godly examples in Scripture. Draw from the ungodly examples in Scripture. Draw from the types and draw from the shadows. Also, you and I, 2,000 years later, we can draw from the faithful witness of godly men and women throughout history. Draw from them. It's all there for you to bring out as you scatter the wonders of the kingdom far and wide. As you bring the good news to all the peoples of the earth. Now this could also mean that uh, you draw from both the new and the old in scripture. As Jesus is teaching them new things that clarify, draw from those and draw from the old. The entirety of God's truth from beginning to end is fully reliable fully authoritative, fully truthful, and we can apply it to an ever-changing culture. And also, this is a good, not warning, but good instruction for many in the church today who either focus on the new or the old. Have you ever noticed, right? You've got some in the church who are fully focused on the new, always wanting to move on to the next big thing, the next big thought, the next big... <clears throat> uh, idea in the Christian world and they consistently discard the old stuff. Jesus said, you draw out from what is new and what is old. But then there are those who only focus on the old. That's not the way we have always done it in this church. We, uh, we love the old hymns or we love the old this or we love the old that. There are times in Scripture where the psalmists say, sing a new song. <clears throat> new and Old. We bring out from the treasures of the storehouse of truth, new and old, and we scatter those truths throughout the world. And so the question then remains the same to you this morning. You see, these apostles, after the ascension of Christ and the arrival of the Holy Spirit, brought the gospel to the nations near and far. And now, 2,000 years later, the baton is in your hand. It's in my hand. The responsibility for continuing the work of bringing out from the storehouse treasures new and old is now fallen to us. So, here's the question posed to you. Have you understood all these things? Can you say yes to the question that Jesus poses to the disciples here. Do you know, do you understand the gospel? Is it as near and dear to you, as important to you, as, for example, the prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 20? If I say I will not mention the Lord or speak any more in His name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. Do you know your faith well enough to bring out what is new and what is old from the treasure? Over the years... I've come to learn that you can never assume that even those who profess faith in Jesus Christ actually know or comprehend or understand the good news that they claim to believe in. This moment of clarity came for me as I was asked a few years back to teach, at a, teach a couple of times at a mission organization who claims, their claim is, to focus on preparing young men and women for the mission field. So I walked into the the class fully assuming that they had already instructed these young budding missionaries in the ways of the gospel. And so I launched into the lesson that I'd prepared for the class with the assumption that they knew the basics of their faith. And it quickly became apparent to me that they did not. I had to stop mid-lesson and ask them, to tell me the good news of Jesus Christ. And when I asked them that question, I was met with deafening, awkward, and uncomfortable silence. And from that day forward, it's been a consistent thing. I like to ask professing Christians to articulate the gospel to me. A, because I love to hear it. I could listen to it over and over and over and over again. But B, because in so many instances, people simply cannot do it. And some have responded to my request to articulate for me the good news of Jesus Christ with statements like, well, you're putting me on the spot. I just can't tell you the gospel if you put me on the spot like that. To which I reply, you should never, if you profess Christ, be put on the spot by the gospel. It should be second nature to us. My family has been watching a lot of Karate Kid over the last little while <clears throat> and there's that scene in the Karate Kid where Daniel is told to wax the cars that's like a, an iconic scene right? you're waxing the car and he's putting the wax on the car then he's taking the wax off the car and he wonders why am I doing this? why am I just doing all of this? it seems so useless it doesn't seem to be accomplishing anything and then Mr. Miyagi says wax on And he throws a punch at him and Daniel just instinctively Daniel's the karate kid Instinctively takes the wax off the car Miyagi throws another punch He takes the wax, puts the wax on the car I don't know which one I just said But it just became second nature and instinctual to him because he had put in the time and the effort. He had, he had gotten used to these motions and so when a punch came, he knew exactly what to do. As a believer, Scripture should be our steady diet. It should be second nature to us to the point where if somebody says, I don't know the gospel, you're like, boom, I got it. And you can launch right into it. It should be right on the tip of your tongue, always ready, should the opportunity to speak that gospel present itself. It should never be that one who professes to believe in Christ cannot clearly communicate the soul-saving, life-giving good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some will feel put on the spot because they don't really know the gospel. That was one response I've gotten. Another is... They're too afraid. Some are too afraid to speak it because they fear not being able to answer all of the questions that might be asked of them as they proclaim the gospel. And to these I say, listen, the solution is not to simply remain quiet, but the solution is to dive ever more deeply into the Word of God and gain confidence by learning it better. And even more, give you some permission here. It's okay not to know the answers to every single question. It's okay when somebody asks you a question that you don't know the answer to, to simply say, I don't know the answer to that question. And keep on talking about the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, and make the appeal to repent and believe in His name for salvation. Another response that I get to the question is, and this is by far the most common... Uh, They break into some presentation of the gospel, but it always seems to be a works-based gospel. You ever notice that? Appealing to being a good person and believing that Christ, yes, he is the way to salvation, but if I have to stand before him when all is said and done, I'm going to tell him about all the good things that I've done. Which is anti-gospel. We are saved purely by the grace of God, and that grace is accessed by faith in Christ not by our works. Now, if you're hearing this and you love the Lord, should not this state of affairs grieve you? Because this is our duty. You and I are the masters of the house that are tasked with bringing out the treasures and scattering them into the world. And if someone claims to to love Jesus but can't or doesn't know how to speak the gospel, if they can't articulate the gospel that they claim to profess, how can they know for sure that they are saved? If you can't speak the gospel, how do you know you're saved? If you cannot clearly express the central message of the faith you profess to believe, you cannot communicate why we must be saved or how a person lays hold of that salvation and forgiveness or who it is that saves and how that happens, then how can such a person really call themselves a Christian if you don't know your own faith? And to to this, some might say, well, the Bible's really difficult to understand. It's hard to grasp. I mean, it's written in, these, in this old-timey language, and, and it, it, the, the, the thoughts and the concepts are, are difficult to grasp. But let me tell you, it isn't. We as Protestants believe that it isn't. In fact, we have a doctrine specifically about this. It's called, ironically, the perspicuity of Scripture. Why they chose a difficult word to declare to us the simplicity of Scripture, I don't know, but, you know, we have a tendency to do that. The gospel, if you read the Bible and you look at it, the gospel is simple to grasp. It's easy to understand. It's right there clearly for you to know. The central doctrines of the faith in Scripture are clear and understandable. So much so that the great reformer Martin Luther, back in the uh, 1500s, declared this, not only learned but unlearned, in in due use of ordinary means... May attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. You can know the truths of the gospel by reading and studying scripture. In our day of relentless visual stimulation, short clips, sound bites, you might very well, however, have to retrain your mind to focus on that scripture. So if you come, some people will come to me and they'll say, Well, it's just too hard. It's not. If this is how God has revealed himself to us, if the truth of God is in this book and you come to me and you say, I'm just not a good reader, my response will be, well, you better get to become one. This is where God has revealed himself. Become a reader. If God had revealed himself through videos, I'd say, become a video watcher. But he didn't. This is it. So, Again, the question is, have you understood all these things? Have you comprehended the truths of the gospel? Can you say, yes, I grasp and believe the things that Jesus has spoken and taught? Now, in this phrase, have you understood all these things, The these things that Jesus is talking about here are the seven kingdom parables, six of which we've looked at in detail over the last few weeks. And this morning we'll look at the seventh, but we're going to do a general overview of the these things once again as we conclude this chapter today to help us put it all together. So if you recall, like we said earlier... The shift from the clear and direct teaching of Je- that Jesus employed in the earlier stages of his ministry shifted to parables after the Pharisees rejected him as Messiah and King of Israel, after they made it clear that they refused to repent and return to the Lord. After Jesus had healed a man with the withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath, the Pharisees, in their raging, jealous, rabid anger, went out and they conspired together by hatching a sinister plot to see Jesus put to death. And it would seem that the first step in that plan to ultimately have Jesus put to death was to accuse him of playing on Satan's team. And so they did. They worked their way through the crowds as Jesus taught and healed and they put the idea in the minds of the crowds in chapter 12 verse 24 saying it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons that this man casts out demons. In other words, this man is aligned with Satan. And Jesus rebuked them for those blasphemous words, but immediately after he did so, he substituted or switched up his clear teaching with the more cryptic, symbolic, and imaginative form of parables. Now, as the disciples witnessed the response of the Pharisees and the religious leaders to their rabbi, as the disciples, following Jesus, listened to the leaders speak with scorn and derision about Jesus, Speaking libelously and slanderously against Jesus, they most likely thought to themselves, how can this be? How is it that these religious leaders and scribes who have been trained in and instructed in the scriptures as they are, how can they reject the Messiah that we've all been waiting for? Surely all will hear and believe the Lord's Messiah, right? So what foolishness then is this to see these men so petty and so jealous as they reject the Messiah who stands in their presence? Well, Jesus immediately launches into the first parable to answer that question. He launches into the parables of the soil, soils, telling a story about a sower who went out to sow. Now, the sower in the immediate context is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And the seed sown by that sower is the gospel of the kingdom, the call to repent and believe in Him. But this parable also, by extension, speaks to Christians from that day to this. It speaks to you who are committed to obeying the commission of the Lord. His command to each one of us to go out into the world and to scatter that seed to the nations. Like Jesus... Like the apostles, you too can expect to encounter a number of responses to the gospel as you sow that seed of the gospel into the world. Some, said Jesus, firstly, will be like the soil on the path, impenetrable, dense, thick, and resistant. The seed scattered on the path simply bounces up against the soil and comes to rest on the surface of that soil and is destroyed as... Travelers stomp on it and trample it underfoot. Or it's gobbled up by the birds. Now, if you read the next couple of chapters of Matthew, you will see all four of these responses made clear in the different narratives that come after. So the soil on the path can be likened to the Pharisees as a general group. They are characterized. They characterize the soil on the path. As you can see also in the last bit of our text this morning, in 53 to 58, the citizens of Nazareth, who instead of believing in the Lord Jesus, even after they heard his gracious teaching and they knew about his mighty works, instead of believing, they were like the soil on the path also. Even though he taught them in their synagogues, even though they were astounded by his teaching, they simply refused to reflect on those words and on that teaching. Instead, the text tells us they were offended by him and in their pettiness and jealousy they simply said, we've known this guy. He's the son of the the carpenter. We've seen him. We've watched him. You know, maybe he was making tables or something with his father. But Jesus had far outstripped the citizens of Nazareth by this time in his popularity and in his wisdom and in his power, but they could not. They could not accept it and so they were offended by him. They're like the hard soil. Others, Jesus continued in the same parable, will be like the rocky soil. The roots of any seed you put in the ground might very well germinate, but these particular ones hit a rock as they were germinating. And so the roots were shallow, and without roots going deep enough to draw life-giving, life-sustaining water, without strong roots, when the sun of persecution rises, when tribulation rises on account of their profession of faith in Christ, these types are scorched and they wither. Or as Jesus explained more clearly, they fall away. They abandon the profession they once acknowledged. And we could see examples of this in the crowds that follow Jesus around. In the next few chapters, we'll see Jesus miraculously feed 5,000 men with nothing more than five loaves and two fish. And again, in chapter 15, we'll see Jesus feed 4,000 men with nothing more than seven loaves and a few small fish. And John recorded the immediate reaction of the crowds to this great miracle in chapter 6, verse 14. They said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. And these same crowds... We were about to come and take Jesus by force and install him as king. But their reaction to Jesus didn't arise from any true faith in Jesus. Their roots were very, very, very shallow. Their faith or, or their belief in him came from the fact that their bellies were full as he fed them with the bread. That's what Jesus made clear in John 6 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, to the crowds, crowds you are seeking me, because, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So they came to Jesus because he was offering them something. It wasn't a real deep faith, drawing life, sustaining water. Because these same crowds, later on, when they were threatened from, with expulsion from the synagogue for confessing Jesus, as the Pharisees warned in John 9, 22, they fell in with those same Pharisees. And as Jesus stood there, bound in front of them, and Pilate was asking, Who would you have me release to you? Barabbas, as Luke 23, 19 tells us, who was a Jewish freedom fighter or a notorious insurrectionist. Who would you rather? The peaceful, gracious Lord Jesus Christ, or this man Barabbas, the one who led riots and revolts and rebellions and uprisings? And the crowds cried out for this man Barabbas to be released and with equal passion almost rioted against Pilate as Pilate attempted to release Jesus. And they shouted, Let him be crucified! These are the same crowds that not too long ago tried to install him as king over Israel. Still many others will respond to the seed of the gospel like thorny soil, Jesus said meaning they will hear the words and per- perhaps they'll even profess to believe that word for a time only to see that seed, the seed of the word choked out by the cares of the world, choked out by the deceitfulness of riches and thereby fruitful, fruitless and unsaved. We see this response in Matthew chapter 19 as this rich young man comes to Jesus asking him, Teacher, what must I do to inherit or to gain or to have eternal life? So here you've got a young man interested in who desires the benefits and the rewards of the kingdom and so he comes to Christ asking how he might attain those benefits and attain those blessings. And as Jesus keeps telling the man, have you done this? Have you done that? Have you done this? The man keeps justifying himself as one who has followed the commandments of God. And so Jesus hits him with a spiritual gut punch. Jesus, knowing that this man loved his money above all other things, knowing that this young man trusted in his riches, went straight for those riches and said, if you would be perfect, go Sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And the young man heard what Jesus said, understood what Jesus said. Jesus had laid out before him the path to eternal life. And this man, held in the grip of his riches like a deer in the clutches of a python, was choked by those riches and the seed that had been scattered to him proved unfruitful. And still others will respond to the sowing of the seed with true faith, with real belief. These are like seeds sown on good soil that produces a good crop. And we see such a response, albeit rather imperfectly, in the small faith of Peter, who walked on water when Jesus called him out to do so. We see in Matthew 15, in the faith of the Canaanite woman, to whom Jesus said, O woman, great is your faith. Now, once again... After hearing both the parable and the explanation of the parable, the disciples, being products of their time and place, being men who were raised in a certain culture with certain beliefs and certain expectations about Messiah, about everything that would take place upon the arrival of Messiah, such as the immediate termination of all who refused to believe in his rule, the destruction and elimination of all foreign powers ruling over the nation of Israel, and his ascent to and sitting on the throne ruling over Jerusalem and over all the nations. They expected all of this to happen at the coming of Messiah. Now, while we know that these events will come to pass, the disciples misunderstood the timing And so Jesus explained to them in the next parable how it is that he has come and the good soil must wait for the establishment of the earthly kingdom, must wait for the cutting off of the wicked in this second parable about the wheat and the weeds. There he makes it clear that for the time being, the wheat... Symbolizing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the weeds symbolizing rebels against Christ, subjects of Satan, they will both grow up in the world together, and the Lord patiently and graciously leaves as much time as possible for all who would to come to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. However, the time is coming. At the end of the age, when Jesus will send out his angels to gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and these will be thrown, Jesus said, into the fiery furnace, while the righteous enjoy the blessings of eternal life in the kingdom of their Father. But again, if you're a disciple standing there on this day, and you've heard those two parables, the question arises in your mind again, given the disparity between what the disciples see and experience right in front of them and all that Christ has declared will come to pass in the future, how are we going to move there? How are we going to get there? How can we move from this small and humble beginnings that we see right now to so great a kingdom? Given all the opposition to the kingdom from the religious leaders... And from the crowds, given all the antagonism leveled against the kingdom from that day to this, all the assaults, all the ambushes, all the snares set in and on the path to strangle and eliminate the kingdom, how can the kingdom survive to the end of the age? And to answer this, Jesus encouraged his disciples and us with two more parables, describing in those parables the unstoppable advance, impact, and growth of his kingdom. You see, the kingdom's beginnings might have been very small and insignificant in the grand scheme of global events, but that kingdom would and will and continues to this day to press forward as people all over the world turn to Jesus in faith, bowing their knee to the king of the kingdom. And in so doing, they become citizens of this ever-growing kingdom. And the unfailing progress of the kingdom is described and likened First, to a mustard seed. Look at verse 32. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And again, it's likened to leaven hidden in a rather large amount of flour in verse 33. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. You see, when Jesus spoke these parables, the citizens of the kingdom were few in number. They were a small measure of leaven. But their message, the call to repentance and faith, will inevitably work its way through this rather daunting amount or quantity of flour. The message that they bring to the world will permeate the entirety of the world, even if its work goes largely unseen. When all is said and done... The entire batch will be leavened. The benefits of entry into this kingdom are quite amazing as well, as believers in Christ are gifted the blessing of eternal life with the Lord Jesus Christ, enjoying Him forever. Now, don't underestimate the exceptional and the extraordinary bounty of this blessing. I want you to think for a moment about the greatest joys of your life here on earth. I want you to consider and to ponder your experiences, those times of exhilaration, those times of rejoicing, those times of great gladness and pleasure in your life. For me, they, are, they, are, they consist of those times, and maybe you've had them too, when you laugh so hard with another person. Side-splitting, pain in the rib, tears in the eyes, sore muscles in your belly, aching head times of laughter. For me, those are first-class moments in life. They're few and far between, though. And yet, even those first-class moments in life are not worth comparing to the joys of eternal life with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, think about it every single one of our earthly joys, every single one of our earthly causes for gladness are corrupted by and tainted with the depravity of sin. We can't begin to grasp how much greater our joys will be when sin and depravity and impurity are removed from the equation. And that's just what it will be when we are with Christ in eternity, enjoying Him forever. It's all... This, this is only possible in the Lord Jesus Christ. So to be a citizen of the kingdom forever under the rule of the only perfect king, delighting in him who fulfills every single one of our deepest longings and desires for true, lasting, perfect joy and happiness is the greatest treasure anyone could lay hold of. And when you turn to Jesus in faith, this is exactly what you lay hold of. And this is what Jesus was getting at when he got moved to the next two parables. Parables. Look at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like the treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And then again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So you see, entry into and citizenship in the kingdom of heaven is of such surpassing worth such surpassing value that those who truly see it, whether they stumble upon it, like the man who uncovered a treasure in a field, or whether they go on a quest to find truth, searching for truth because what they currently possess does not truly satisfy them, does not truly quench their soul's aim and desire for a peace, a gladness, a contentedness, a happiness that rises above the shifting circumstances of life in a corrupt world, However one arrives upon the treasure or upon the pearl of the gospel, if they have eyes to see it's true, it's real, it's preeminent, it's supreme worth, such will not even think twice. They will give up, lay down, sell off, mortify anything that might threaten with or interfere with laying hold of him, the supreme treasure, Jesus Christ." And for Christ, we, like Paul, count all of our earthly gains, all of our earthly benefits as loss in comparison to knowing him as Lord.
1: And now we
0: move into the final parable in verse 47. And this parable overlaps with the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And it concludes the set of seven parables Now, this parable ends with a reminder or a call to contrast the fortune that is entry into the kingdom with the final destination of those who reject the wonderful offer held out to them in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 47 to 50 again. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers and threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now this seems to overlap a lot with the previous parable of the um, wheat and the weeds, right? Jesus... In both, Jesus spoke to the final destinations of the righteous and the wicked. But I want you to just notice something. Notice where he ends in his explanation of the parable of the weeds. He ends with, verse 43, "...the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father." So Jesus in that parable of the wheat and the weeds first speaks about the lawbreakers who would be thrown into the fiery furnace and then concludes that parable with with an explanation or a note uh, about those who trust and believe the gospel. These will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father and from this he jumps into the value of the all-surpassing value of the kingdom. He speaks those two parables about the value of the kingdom being like treasure and being like a fine pearl. But in this final of the seven kingdom parables, no mention is made of the final destination of the righteous, but in, except that they are sorted into containers. But this parable ends or leaves the eternal destiny of the bad hanging for your consideration. Here are the options that are available to all mankind. One, entry into the kingdom of heaven by grace through faith in the king. Or two, rejection of the kingdom, rebelling against the king, and the sentence of eternal condemnation, eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth in the fiery furnace of judgment. And that's where Jesus ends it. Look at the parable again. The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea. Once again, Jesus used an illustration, a visual picture common to the listeners that are gathered on the beach listening to him. He uses the illustration of throwing out a net and letting that net envelop everything in its path and then hauling that net to the shore where they would sort out the the catch, edible fish into good containers and inedible fish tossed away. And the net referred to here is a dragnet, A dragnet was this humongous net, a net that covered a gigantic area. And the net was, generally speaking, pulled in by two boats, slowly, and as it was pulled, the net would slowly encircle around the area intended, gathering up in it everything, encircling and enclosing itself around everything in the water. In the Sea of Galilee, there were about 20 kinds of fish present and the net was so huge and it closed so slowly that the fish caught in the net had no clue that they were caught into it until they were hoisted up onto the shore. The picture that Jesus is using here speaks to the current reality of all peoples in the earth. The dragnet of judgment is, right now, at this moment, silently encircling around, catching and closing in on every side, each and every one of us. And there is coming a day when that net is fully cinched, closed, and hauled up onto the shores for the times of separation. And we exist right now in the time of the dragnet's movement through the waters, As the entirety of the earth is caught up in the net and when the net is finally brought up onto the shore and the final separation takes place, believers to eternal life and unbelievers to eternal damnation. And I want you to know, it says fish of every kind. Do you see that? That means fish of every nation, every tribe, every language, every culture, every skin color, every social class, every educational level, every earthly status and all the rest all will be caught up in this net and when it is hauled on to the shore it is too late for any of the fish or any of the people who have rejected christ in this life this day when the net finally hits up onto the shore will be a day of great rejoicing for those who put their faith in christ and it will be an awful and terrible day for those who rejected him and Jesus leaves this hanging as if to say, now is the time. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day to hear and believe. Now is the time to recognize Christ as the treasure, Christ as the fine pearl for whom we give up everything we have. Turn to Christ in faith and move from being a weed in the field to wheat. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and so that when you are hauled up onto the shore, you are sorted into the container filled with good fish instead of being thrown away like the bad fish at the end of the age Jesus said the angels will come out and he will separate from evil from the righteous and separate here means they will be excluded they will be removed they will be taken out you see that the evil will be uprooted from the field with the wheat thrown into the fiery furnace now this idea of fiery furnace is a metaphor for hell it's a serious serious con- uh, idea and concept Hell is the ultimate destination of all the wicked, of everyone who's rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the place Scripture refers to in a number of horrifying ways. The eternal fire, the furnace of fire. As Jesus declared in Matthew 25, when Jesus speaks of His future dismissal of the wicked into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell is termed a place of outer darkness. It is termed the place of weeping and eternal torment, as Jesus already made clear in Matthew eight twelve, when he spoke of the rebellious Jews being thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And in Revelation, hell is called the bottomless pit in chapter 9, verse 1. Hell in Revelation is depicted as a place of unrelenting torment. Speaking of those who worship the beast, the rebels against the Lord Jesus Christ, Revelation 14 tells us this, such a person will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night Hell is called the second death in Revelation 21, verse 8, where he writes this, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We could multiply texts that speak to the horrors of hell. And know this, Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone else in Scripture. Its terrors were ever on his lips as he consistently and persistently warned everyone about it while calling them to repent and to believe in him for the forgiveness of sins. And it's after finishing up this series of seven kingdom parables that Jesus turns to the disciples and asks them that pointed and direct question that we began with. Have you understood all of these things? Have you grasped? Have you comprehended the kingdom realities that have been taught in these parables? Have you made sense of the lessons taught in the soils and the weed of the weed, wheat and the weeds, the advance of the kingdom, the surpassing value of the kingdom, the great end-time separation of the good to eternal life and the wicked to eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth and the disciples look at Jesus and respond with a yes? Do you see the stakes? Church, do you see the stakes? There are no higher stakes than these. To be one who both believes and understands the gospel, to be one who proclaims that gospel to others, do you comprehend the value of the kingdom of God? Do you rest your hope and confidence in the king's promises of his kingdom's inevitable and unstoppable advance? The Lord revealed these promises and these parables as encouragements for us who love Him to press on in mission and in witness in spite of all of the obstacles that rise against us in this world. Are you confident in the current rule of King Jesus? Are you confident in His ultimate victory over all causes of sin and all lawbreakers? Do you have a good grasp of Scripture's teaching and truth? Can you bring out from the storehouse what is old and what is new and scatter it for the benefit of this world? If you answered no to that question, my, uh, my follow-up question to you is, why not? It's one of two reasons. Either you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and if that's the, que- if that's the reason, I implore you to repent of your sin and believe in Him right now. To believe in Jesus God, come to us in the flesh to solve our great problem, sin and the devastation that it wreaks in our lives, the worst of which is your current state of being an enemy of God. If you would be in right relationship with God, you must have your sins atoned for. You must have the penalty for your sins paid for. But here is the truth. You can't do it. I can't do it. There's only one who can do it. You, a finite human being, have sinned against an infinitely holy God and there is only one way for those sins that you have committed against Him to be dealt with. And that is by grace through faith in Christ. Who, being God, took on flesh and came to live the perfect life that God requires and took upon Himself the furious wrath of God in your place to pay for the sins of all who believe in Him. When you turn to Jesus in faith, He takes upon Himself the wrath of God for your sin. He pays the full cost and penalty of those sins and He clothes you and gifts you with the the perfection of His own life. Think about Jesus' perfect, righteous life as a cloak that he puts on you so that when the Father sees you, he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And for that reason, by grace through faith in him, because of his saving works, you will be adopted into the family of God. You will enter the kingdom of heaven, and you will be given the benefits and the good gifts of God that are beyond anything you can imagine, the greatest of which being eternal life with him. Now, if you do profess to be a believer and you can't explain the basic tenets of your own faith, there is something wrong there. If the gospel just isn't second nature, now I'm not talking about a new Christian, but I know that there are a number of people who've been Christians or profess to be Christians for years and can't explain the gospel or they can't comprehend the words of Jesus Christ. My question to you is why is that the case? And just so you know, there is no right answer to that question. One of, if not the primary mission of your life and my life, if we profess faith in Christ, is the scattering and the declaring and the proclaiming of the truth of Christ to everyone. This is why it is so important for you and I to be reading and studying and meditating on the Word of God, to be sitting under good, faithful God and Christ-exalting preaching of that Word for your growth, your instruction, and your training and knowledge in the ways of righteousness so that you can, as Jesus said in the final parable of Matthew 13, instruct others in the ways of Christ. Your task during the few short days of your life on earth is to bring to view the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because as you know and you see, the world that we live in is doing everything it can to suppress the knowledge of that truth. It's doing it with all of its might. You can see it, right? The wicked of the earth strive to hide and to bury and to obscure the victory of the king, the reality of the oncoming and soon-to-arrive judgment, and they do so by a variety of means. It would seem that our world is very keen to inspire worry and anxiety and fear among the peoples in the world. There is a reason why the news cycle is always negative no matter who you listen to. Negative news and fear-mongering, it gets more clicks. It holds more minds in bondage. It inspires greater division and quarreling and faction. It brings greater hostilities, separation and anger. And in the midst of all of this evil, you and I, Christ has committed to us the word of peace, the word of hope, the word of love and grace and charity and salvation. And we are called to bring, out, bring these out from the storehouse of treasure that's been committed to us. The storehouse from which we scatter the truths of God for the benefit of all mankind. So in closing, what are you to do with all of this information that you've been given this morning? Well, first, if you don't really know, if you are one of those who can't express or articulate the basic fundamental tenets of your faith, if you can't express the gospel in words with some level of confidence, then I exhort you to commit yourself to learning and growing in the knowledge of your faith by whatever means you can. And if you are one confident in the word of the Lord... If you are like a master of a house trained in the ways of the kingdom, my exhortation to you and encouragement to you is to keep on honoring God in this lost world by bringing out from your treasure what is new and what is old to the glory of our Lord. Father, we thank you and we praise you and we honor you. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ speaking these parables, parables of Um, encouragement, parables of exhortation, parables of edification, and also parables of warning. Father, I pray that us who are listening online and us who are here this morning and anyone to whom this message might come, that you would give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear and help us to recognize that you are a treasure of all-surpassing value. And the benefits of serving you far outweigh any of the troubles that might arise as we live in this world. I pray that you would help us to keep our hope on you, our hope grounded in you, our confidence in you. And I pray for your Holy Spirit's help to bring us to a place where the gospel, the message of our salvation the message we are tasked with bringing to the world would become second nature to us in terms of our ability to vocalize it to anyone who asks. We pray all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.